So at the end of the Nicodemus conversation that we had last week, uh, we were looking at John chapter 3. John goes on to write in uh, John 3.17, he says this. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So our choices reflect our understanding of the heart of Christ in us where or whom we avoid, and where or whom we move towards. And we live in a culture that places a really high value on safety and comfort. And unfortunately, that's bled over a lot into the church as well. And in St. Joe, it can be pretty stark and well-defined. Some people avoid certain parts of our town, certain schools in our town, certain types of people in our town. Why? Well, primarily because we're scared, protecting our children, afraid of their influence, disgusted by the choices of others, not wanting to enable people's damaging lifestyle. We all have biases that keep us separated from a segment of our population. It's not pretty, but it's honest. So last week we talked about a group of religious leaders who were famous for this very thing. They were called the Pharisees, and we talked about how the word Pharisee actually means the separate ones. And they kept their distance from the less desirable, those who they thought would contaminate their supposed cleanliness and holiness with their corrupt and sinful lifestyles or even just their diseases or deformities which they thought were punishment for their sin. So with that kind of message being communicated to the marginalized and the lame and the poor and the diseased and the sinners, no wonder they were drawn so strongly to Jesus because he seemed to be moving in their direction, undeterred by their conditions, full of compassion and grace and understanding he was eager to touch the untouchable, to know, to heal, to see the potential in people who were used to being judged and condemned. That was his growing reputation, his growing winsomeness. And it was the church people who this bothered the most. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 4. It's page 1514. We're going to read the first four verses. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, which is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is, and went back once more to Galilee, more towards the north where Nazareth and Capernaum is. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. 
So before we get much further into this story, I want to stop for a quick history and geography lesson real quickly because Jesus didn't technically have to go through Samaria. In fact, if you were a devout Jew, most of them tried to avoid going through Samaria like the plague. So got a little map here for you. You can see Jerusalem down in the bottom down there by the Dead Sea and then Galilee way up in the north where the Sea of Galilee is. That red path, there's like different ways you could get from one to the other. The red path is the path that a lot of the devout Jews would take. They would completely avoid the area in the middle where it says Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River twice in order to get back up to Galilee. So you can imagine how much harder, how much longer. Probably there was a fee for crossing the river, right? They were willing to go to those links to avoid that area because they despised the Samaritans so much. So, why? <laughs> well, over the course of Jewish history, a couple different times as you read your Old Testament, you'll see that the Jews were kind of overrun um, by some enemies, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And a lot of times when those enemies would come in, they would take away kind of the, the most educated, the government officials, the religious leaders, people who they thought could serve them well um, in exile. So they would take them away to their capitals, um, away, and they would leave behind kind of the, the lower class folks the common folks. And over the course of history, they had begun to intermarry with these foreigners, adopting sometimes their, their idols and their foreign gods and kind of blending it with, with Judaism. And so this was really detestable to the Jews that came back um, from exile. And that led them to see the Samaritans as just half-breeds and idolaters. So very derogatory view of those folks. Um, and, and people that would have been seen as unclean um, to go and worship and make sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So in response, the Samaritans built their own temple, which the Jews then burned down in 126 BC. So yeah, there was some bad blood between those two groups, okay? So that's just a little backstory on, on this as we head into this, uh, the rest of the story today. So knowing all of this, and with Jesus trying to teach his disciples this new way of following um, in this kingdom and spreading the kingdom that he's talking about, he kind of dives right in. He chose to confront this pride and racism head on. So he had, this, he had this divine appointment in Samaria that day. And it was quickly becoming his pattern not to avoid, but to move towards the despised and the lost and the hurting. So let's take a look at verse 5. It says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is basically breaking all the rules that would have been acceptable for a Jew, let alone a rabbi. Um, rabbis were forbidden to speak to women in public. Okay? So we see that in the reaction that the disciples, skip down to verse 27, when they come back from town after going to get food, this is what it says in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. <laughs> right? So they know this is inappropriate. 
And Jesus is pushing up against three big taboos here. He's pushing up against the gender taboo, the race taboo, and the reputation taboo. But for the time being, it's just a private conversation between Jesus and a woman who's come out to draw water in the noonday sun. And one of the winsome things that, uh, about Jesus, I think, that we find in verse 7 is he asks this woman who feels unworthy to serve him a drink. Why? I mean, he's God. If he wanted, he could just snap his fingers and have a nice, cool Gatorade right then. So why does he say, will you give me a drink? What do you guys think? Yeah, so it gives them a sense of value, a role to play, kind of in the story. Okay, that's a great answer. So, yeah. Allowing her to feel like the one who has something to offer. <laughs> and guys, that's, that's just an incredible, incredibly disarming approach. Right? With somebody that maybe you might disagree with even in the situation. Back when I was on Young Life staff, um, I used to do this thing where um, I would get to know some kids at school, and I would try to find kids, usually kind of fringe kids, kids that probably weren't Christians, may or may not come to Young Life Club very often, and I would try to find kids to like form a band to play with me at Young Life Club, right? One, I wasn't very good, so I needed a good backup band, but I was, so I would just start asking kids, and as I got to know kids, like, hey man, who can play guitar? Are there any drummers around? Like, yeah, you need to talk to this kid and this kid and this side. So I'd go up and ask them, I'm like, hey man, I really need you uh, to come to club and to play with me, man. It would be huge. And so I'd get these kids to be like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to, right? Because they want to be rock stars up there in front of their friends. And so I was like, but here's the deal, man. We got to practice. So I, I need, can I come over to your house? And um, I don't know where you guys practice in the basement or garage or whatever. Like, yeah, man, we got stuff set up down there. So I'd go over to their house after school and I'd get to know their parents maybe. And we'd practice for a couple of hours and I'd develop this relationship with the kids, right? And then we'd get to club and they're, you know, they're getting all the notoriety, and it's, it's kind of a win-win. And it was so much fun. And it was kind of truly one of the really winsome techniques that I kind of picked up on um, doing ministry and just had a blast. Maybe something that you could try next time. When your temptation is to tell someone about the evil choices and lifestyle choices that they're making, maybe instead find out what they're good at and ask him to serve you in some way. Find out what they're good at and ask him to serve you in some way. Just a thought. Back-to-back -back stories in the Gospel of John. John 3, Jesus had something to say to the religious establishment, Nicodemus. And he has something to say to those despised by the religious establishment in chapter 4. And he handles those conversations completely differently. And he communicates that no one is too good for Jesus, at least in their own eyes. 
and no one is too far gone. And as a side note in verse 8, it says that the disciples went into town to buy food. And they're kind of being forced to rub shoulders with their enemy. And I'm sure that most of them are just hating Jesus right now. (laughs) Because they know that they didn't have to go this way. That Jesus has brought them there probably for a reason, right? Let's look at verse 9. It says, a Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So even this... You know, sinful woman is very aware that Jesus is breaking all of the rules in this situation. Everyone seems hyper aware of this besides Jesus. And I'm always struck by the power of verse 10. Because here Jesus offers this woman living water, right? Like forgiveness, eternal life, before he's even confronted her sin. Before he's given her an opportunity to confess or repent of anything, the offer is on the table. And isn't that the winsome way of the cross? That Jesus has already paid the price. He's already paid the way for us to be right with God and to be forgiven before we even realize the the full gravity of our eternal situation. And she would have been very familiar with this phrase, living water, from the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verses 13, God said this through the prophet. He said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God identified himself with this imagery of living water like centuries ago. So this would have connected with her. And many of us, I think, want to enter conversations with lost or kind of searching people by putting the sin discussion first. Clean your act up. Stop doing this or being that. And then maybe you'll be worthy of the living water. Get sober and get to church. Give up your gay lifestyle and get to church. Move out of your boyfriend's house and get to church. The outward sins are so easy for us to spot and to call out in others. While the person doing the calling out might be struggling in their own heart with pride and selfishness and greed and lust and unforgiveness, which is equally as detestable to God. Do you see the double standard? 
here's the secret, folks. The living water does the cleaning. The Holy Spirit does the convicting and the revealing. It's his work to do in somebody's life. Our job, our role, <laughs> is to reflect him well. To do it in a winsome way that then draws them to the healer. And just a little side note in verse 12. If you notice, she kind of tried to divert the conversation a little bit. Things are, are starting to get a little hot. And she's trying to drag the conversation away from herself and back kind of on the history lesson. She starts talking about Jacob and Jesus doesn't take the bait. He understands that this is, is kind of a smoke screen, kind of a rabbit trail she's trying to go down. And maybe you've been in conversations like that where you're, you're starting to get to a vulnerable place with someone and all of a sudden they, they try to throw out some distracting question or what about this, you know? What about the person in Timbuktu who's never heard about Jesus or whatever? It's like, well, and Jesus steers right back to her heart, right? He doesn't take the bait. He says, no, we need to stay right here. And he describes the power and the difference between the water that she draws every day that leaves her thirsty soon after and the living water that he's offering that will satisfy her soul forever. And that brings us to the pivotal point in the conversation. The grace has already been offered. It's on the table. But now we need to, to balance this with some truth. And so verse 15 the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. One of my favorite uh, pastors, Alistair Begg, said that he heard a speaker once call this point in the story the pain barrier. The pain barrier. It's the point in a relationship where we, we have to address the pain and the sinful choices that have led to it. And so he leans in to the conversation. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. What stands out to you about that interaction right there? Just those last couple of verses. Okay, yeah, so there's this, maybe this assumption that maybe, hey, you don't know me, you don't know my circumstances, but yeah, Jesus kind of re-edifies that, no, I, I know all about you, right? Yeah, what else do you notice? Yeah, 
Yeah, so he gives her an opportunity for her to kind of say it out loud first, right? To, to take ownership of her responsibility instead of him just saying, well, yeah, yeah, I know who you are. I know how many husbands you've had, and right? Sometimes when you say it out loud, it kind of gives you an opportunity to take responsibility for that. Yeah, that's good. I picture this, the tenor of Jesus here just being one of just complete tenderness. He's not reveling in some attitude of like, gotcha, right? I know exactly what you've done. And just so excited, kind of licking his chops to be like, oh man, I'm going to call you on the carpet here. You were going to pay for this. Why? Because he already knows her story. He already knows why she's out here at noon by herself because she's been shunned by the other women in town. He's filled with compassion because she is like a sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable, scared, spiritually hungry and thirsty for real love and real connection. Jesus knows these things. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And Jesus interrupts her story, doesn't he? She just barely cracks the lid on the depth of what she's done and been through in life. And Jesus hops right in and kind of saves her from having to explain all the grisly details. And it reminds me of the the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Right, the, the proud, arrogant son takes his inheritance early and then he leaves his father and he goes off and it says he spends it on wild living. And then at some point he kind of reaches bottom and he's like, man, I've got to go back home. And so he starts to go back towards the father. He's got his apology in hand, all ready to, to give it to his dad to hopefully say, hey, will you take me back in just as a servant? But it says that while he was still a long way off, the father seeing his son, runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. And the son, shocked by the gracious response of the father that he turned his back on, launches into his apology. But he barely gets one sentence out of his mouth and his dad's already shouting orders to the servants, kill the fattened calf. Get the tables out of the basement. Set the chairs up. We're going to have a feast. We're going to throw a party. Because my son, who was lost, is now found. And in that moment, the sordid details of just how far the fall the son had, had fallen don't matter anymore. There's no point in dwelling on the gutter days. The father's just happy that he's here. How does she respond to this moment where Christ has spoken the truth and love to her, painful as it was to hear it from a stranger? Let's look at verse 19. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So she says, I can see that you're a prophet. I've been exposed. All my dirty laundry is out on the table now. And she seems to be asking, if I were to go to make a sacrifice for my sins, where would I go? Would I go to the temple here or do I need to go down Jerusalem? Can I? Is that even okay? And Jesus can't wait to give her the answer. Because it's the whole reason why he came in the first place. He says, a time is coming when you won't have to go to a building anymore. Because you will be the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to make my home inside of you and you can talk to me whenever you want. That's an exciting announcement for Jesus, but a pretty confusing announcement for her to kind of wrap her mind around. Like this is a very foreign concept. And so she gives him a great answer. Let's skip down to verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And with that, the cat's out of the bag. I am he. And this broken down, shunned, sinful, half-breed, Samaritan woman is the first person that Jesus reveals his true identity to. Just the two of them hanging out at a well. And then she becomes the first evangelist, goes back into town, into that city, with all those people that are well aware of her sordid past, with this beautiful new reality that she's been offered salvation by this stranger who she's just found out is the long-awaited Savior. Let's watch how they show it in The Chosen real quick.
I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> Who are the Samaritan women in your life? The people that you might look down on, if you're honest, and maybe even despise. If they were going to retitle this story for today, what might this story be called? The lesbian at the well? The MAGA hat, gun-toting, radical at the well? The trans guy who competes on the women's sports teams at the well? The BLM rioter at the well? The homeless, addicted, beggar at the well or maybe even the judgmental Christian at the well I want you to picture that person whoever it is like we talked a couple weeks about that kind of you loathe <laughs> whose choices you despise and I want you to picture yourself approaching that well where your enemy is drawing water. And I want you to think about what thoughts and emotions and feelings you might be having about that person as you approach. You just couldn't disagree with more about life. Just be honest with yourself. Jesus approached that woman with compassion because he already knew her story. We, on the other hand, don't know most people's stories, especially those people that we would try to avoid. <laughs> and so we have to take time to be curious about their life. And who knows how long that process might take before we get a real glimpse into their heart. But guys, here's the deal. We were all the woman at the well. Do you get that? At one time, we were all sinful and confused and worshiping all kinds of things that we were hoping were going to bring us happiness and likely filled with guilt and shame over our misguided choices. And Jesus moved towards us with compassion because he knew that our choices and our actions were fueled by our pain and our misunderstandings of his heart towards us. And a couple of years later, Jesus took that woman's shame to the cross. 
just like he did with yours and mine. And he made a way for us to be right with him. And he asks us to go be his ambassadors to this lonely world. With so many people crippled by depression and anxiety, hopeless, divided. And he asks us to be like him. To move towards them. To get to know their story. To extend grace to them before you feel like they've deserved it. And to confront their pain points with compassion and kindness. And then to walk with them and to teach them how to confess and repent because you need to too. And to show them the winsome way of Jesus who came into this world not to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So as we come into our time of communion this morning, we're reminded that the body and blood of Jesus was poured out for you and me. We needed it. We needed saving just as much as the next person, and we still need it today. We need that reminder of apart from Christ, there go I, man. <laughs> I'm no better than the next person who needs Jesus. So let's stay humble. Let's confess and repent of maybe some thought processes we've had of, about people that just have not been loving and kind and Christ-like. And allow him to come and heal us and, and teach us a better way to connect with people's hearts who need to know him. We're just going to give you some time to pray and be quiet. Then the ushers will dismiss you to come up and take communion with us. Let's pray. Oh, man, God, I, I'm just so grateful. Um, thank you for just technology and the ability to just watch that scene to imagine what it must have been like for that woman to see um, the Savior of the world not shun her, not avoid her, not condemn her, but to cover over her sin with his grace and kindness. God, our world needs more of that than what most Christians are offering it right now. And let it start with me. Let it start with each person in this room. God, we love you. We thank you so much that, that you made a way for us, that you took our sin and our shame to the cross. And as we take communion today, we're reminded of that reality. We're grateful for that. God, we ask that we might be broken and poured out for this world as well.